Eric, well after weeks of ploughing through Romans 9 to 11, if you've been around, we finish with the last few verses and they are so much easier than the rest, <laughs> I think. So I'm happy. So let me, let's pray because this is God's word. Father, help us to understand this message of praise that Paul puts at the end of this wonderful section of teaching in your word. Help us to understand you and want to praise you with our lives, we pray in as we look at your word, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, these church renovations were finished about three years ago that we, we are now all enjoying Sunday after Sunday. And uh, I remember when the architects, when we started looking at our buildings, were all over, up and down all over the place and struggling in some way, so many ways. And when we started talking to the architect and he drew up some plans and he came and showed us that those plans, it was like, wow, could... Could we do that? Could we have just one big open space all on one level with more seats? And could we have it nice and simple and straight and and contemporary? That'd be that'd be wonderful. And then as we started the work, it was quite incredible. You could drive a truck, literally they did, down through here, and there was a pillar over there and a pillar over there and another one over there and this was just all empty space and pretty much the middle section was all gone and being rebuilt and it was just amazing watching and you're sitting there thinking, those of us who were able to come in, which wasn't many, only the buildings committee, you'd sit there thinking, look at how this space is going to be. This would be really, really good, I think. Getting excited. I remember looking at the plans and imagining how it would be, envisaging spaces. And I remember as we opened the place up, and for many of you who were here those, in those days, who hadn't been able to come on site and just saw the buildings work around, when you first walked through the doors, it was like, wow, look at this. You'd sort of seen the plans, you'd imagined it, but then you walk into the space and it's something quite remarkable. Now, I know this is not the opera house. I understand that. But it's, it's our church building and it was, for me at least, it was quite exciting to look at the plans unfold into a reality. And I can say that I am not ashamed of what we did. I am not ashamed of our buildings. They're not perfect, but the architects did a great job and the builders did a great job. And it was wonderful to see the plans unfold and the transformation that came about. Now, we've been going through Romans 9 to 11 in our series, God's People, God's Purpose. And in Romans 9 to 11, God gives us a sense of his plans for his people. Actually, it really started almost at chapter 1. And it finishes, this great big long argument in one sense, finishes at the end of chapter 11, which is where we are today. God's people, God's purposes, particularly God's people for his purposes for his people, the Jews and the non-Jewish people, how he's going to make them one and fulfill his purposes through them. Paul said right at the start of Romans, almost in his theme verse, he wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, everyone who has faith, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, the non-Jew. And Paul has outlined that gospel and that plan. And Paul, as he gets to the end of chapter 11, it's like he's saying in his praise, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
I am not ashamed of God's purposes and God's plans for his people. Look at it as I've outlined it. Yes, it's complex. Yes, you might be thinking, what is God doing at this stage in his plan? But when you come to the end of Paul's argument, it's like, whoa. Yeah, there's a complexity about it because it's not easy, but it's also incredibly simple and wonderful. And you can see that the foundations are already in place. That the building will be finished. The major work has been done through Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's like you almost, I think this is what Paul's thinking, what we should be thinking, I just can't wait to see what the finished product will look like. I'm so excited to see God's plans, his purposes for his people worked out through Jesus and the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And as we come to this section here, it's as if Paul, at the end of this big, long argument, takes a long breath, a deep breath, and just shakes his head in wonder and gives praise to God. And that is what I will hope we will do this morning. If you haven't been here for all the talks, well, you're, maybe you're lucky. I don't know. It's been hard work. But in one sense, even though we've battled through Romans 9 to 11 because there's some hard arguments there, you should come to this point and say, wow, so glorious. God is so great. He has power and majesty. It's his work. It's his plan. It's his building. In other words, his people being brought together to be one temple, one building. His purpose. Wow. Isn't God great? And that's what Paul does. He begins this section in verse 33 with wonderment at the very nature of God. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Slightly different translation I gave to you what's in our NIV, but I think better, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How deep they are. I want to talk about the idea of depth. You know, just depth, that, that unfathomable depth. We've been singing about this recently in a song we've learned. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast unmeasured, boundless and free. So deep is it. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me is the current of your love. Leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. So rich and so deep. It just goes on and on and on. Paul says, God is deep in riches. When I was young, I used to read Walt Disney, Disney comics. I loved them. And uh, one of the characters in the Disney comics was Scrooge McDuck, Donald's uncle. Scrooge was very, very wealthy. He had a money vault, piled full of money. And Scrooge, as the picture shows, would swim, go for dives, delighting in his wealth. So deep was his pile of money. 
16 metres in this picture here. How deep is the riches of God? So much deeper than Scrooge McDuck could ever know. What, what does it mean to have all that money? Well, money is basically power. Money gives you capacity. Money gives you freedom to do what you would like to do, to control what you would like to control, to have what you would like to have. We, um, we, 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 we had a bit of money. We found a Groupon deal and um, we organised a holiday to Tangaluma, which is up off an island off Brisbane, one of those islands off Brisbane, lovely little resort uh, on this super-duper deal we got with our money. And one of the things they have at Tangaluma is dolphin feeding. The dolphins come into the beach. And if you pay some money, which we did, you can feed a dolphin. And here's how it works. It's nighttime. They come at dusk. The beach is full of people. Those who have paid their money are standing in a queue. We're at the back of the queue. It took us about an hour of waiting to feed our dolphin. You go down into the water. Someone brings a bucket of fish. You put your hand in, pick up a bucket of fish. Then they come and they hold your arm like this and you put your arm in the water and the dolphin comes and takes the fish. And they say, watch out. And the dolphin takes the fish and you say, thanks for your love, but you can let go of my arm now. (laughs) I have to say it was nice, but it was one of the most demeaning tourist experiences I've ever had in my whole life. I just, can't I feed the dolphin, you know? What am I going to do to it? I don't know if you saw on the news, they had one of these human interest stories. Roger Federer was in Brisbane, and he went to Tangaluma. We caught the ferry. Roger flew his helicopter. I didn't fly. Roger got flown in a helicopter to Tangaluma. And they have images of what a sensitive nature guy Roger is. The beach is except for two or three tourist people standing about 20 metres away while Roger runs around feeding dolphins. (laughs) Now, why can Roger do that? Because Roger has power. Because Roger is a name. Because Roger has influence. Because he is, in a sense, wealthy financially and in terms of influence. John and Anna had very little power. We just joined the queues and got held by the hand to feed the rotten dolphin. It was a nice dolphin. Dolphins are nice. Money gives you that sort of capacity and power. God is deep in riches. God has capacity and power. Richer than Scrooge McDuck. The problem with Scrooge, if you read those Disney comics, Scrooge had money and power and influence, but Scrooge kept stuffing up. His money kept getting him in trouble, partly because he was such a greedy person. And so a lot of the story is about troubles from money for Scrooge. See, it's one thing to have money and influence, but if you can't control yourself, and if you're not rich in relationships, how much value is your depth of your riches? God is rich. Not only can God do what God wishes with his power, but God controls himself. God is rich in relationships. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. He is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2.4 He is rich in love. He is rich in grace. He has true wealth to the bucket full.
to the depths. Not just that. Oh, the riches of the, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. God is deep in wisdom. Wisdom is basically just the capacity to understand, to assess situations, to make good choices, good decisions, to process and to know how to act. So you can know a lot. You can be very, very intelligent, know lots of facts, but be very, very shallow in wisdom. There's lots of people like that. Because they know a lot, they think they're wise, but they're not. And we all find it hard to be wise. Anna and I, we've been having a struggle with wisdom lately. There's these sun lounges on eBay. The guy wanted $280 for the two of them. We looked at them and said, they look pretty classy, sun lounges. Maybe we should get sun lounges and put them out in our pool area and people could sit round because we don't have that at the moment. There's a bit of space there. We offered $160. He turned it down. He's dropped his price to $250. They do look classy, but they're second-hand. But would we use them? Would they fade in the sun? Will they get spiders all over them? Or will we have another thing to maintain and clean? Will they even look any good on our tiles? Should we have another colour? Should we offer $200? Should we give him the $250 he wants? Should we just let it go? Can we transport them? Oh, we're just so confused about sun lounges because there's so many things to weigh up. Do we need sun lounges at all? If so, that's cheap, second-hand. I think, are they cheap? I don't know. I think they are. You have those problems. God has no problems with the sun lounge question. He knows what's wise. That sounds trivial. And it is. But it's true. God is rich in wisdom. He always assesses situations correctly and makes the best decision. He is not confused. One of the reasons he's not confused is that he is deep in knowledge. Oh, the depths of the riches and of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That is, God knows all things truly. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. He knows pi to 537 places and beyond. doesn't just know facts, though. God knows our hearts. He knows us. Actually, even more importantly, God knows himself. Over the last year and a half, I've been working with the Baptist Association. I've been on this thing called the Committee for Ministry. And the Committee for Ministry's biggest responsibility is to interview and assess people applying to become Baptist ministers, accredited Baptist ministers approved by the association. And so we have all these men and women coming in, applying to become Baptist ministers, um, Baptist pastors, accredited ones. And as we've interviewed them, you know, one of the most important things is, are they self-aware? Do they know themselves? Do they know their strengths and weaknesses? It's just absolutely critical for someone in ministry particularly if you're deluded that you're going to be the next Billy Graham. Ride roughshod over churches or get squashed. And not just are you self-aware, but are you other-aware? 
Can you understand situations? Can you know what's good for a church? How to handle people? Or are you kind of blind to all that stuff? It's really important, particularly in Christian ministry. God is completely self-aware. He knows his nature. He is completely other-aware. He knows every situation, the hearts of every person. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of, of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. He is sovereign judge. He judges rightly. He knows the circumstances. He is king. He is Lord. He rules truly. We often don't understand his ways. We are often baffled. As we've seen in Romans 9 to 11. There are things we don't understand. But he is king. His paths are beyond tracing out. We can't always follow them. He's like he's walking in the water and the path goes. But he knows what he's doing. Paul continues to exalt in the greatness of God, but he moves on to do it rather than just saying statements about God almost now by comparison. Comparison with us. And he has a series of three rhetorical questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Who has known the mind of the Lord? The way God's thinking in all situations. We've just found out, we've just been told his paths are beyond tracing out. We don't know the mind of God. Now some people pretend that they do that they are in touch, that they are the spiritual guru, that they are the spiritual leader you need to follow, that they will tell you what God would have and what God is doing in each and every second, but they don't know. And one of the dangers that we sometimes feel is that we want to know these things and we know that we don't know them so that we actually impinge upon others these wonderful truths. So we look to the guru or we look to the pastor or we look to somebody else, the mentor, because they understand the mind of God. Let me tell you, they don't. Who knows the mind of God? Only God. Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8. The Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do not know the mind of God. Then he goes and says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, hello, and making it bud and flourish, so it yields its seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my, is my word that goes out from my mouth, says the Lord. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose which I have sent it. 
We do not know God's thoughts and ways, but we do know some. We do know what he has revealed in his word, which comes out and achieves its purpose. So we need to work hard at understanding God's word. And if you go and see a spiritual teacher or a mentor, they need to take taking you back to what God says in his word. Because anything else beyond that is speculation. We do know in part the mind of God. We can know Jesus as he is revealed. And this is true and real knowledge. But it is limited and we do not know all the mysteries of grace. And we should not pretend that we do or can. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. There is there a call to humility before the greatness and the wisdom and the majesty and power of God. The second question that is raised is, who has been his counsellor? Who has been a counsellor for the Lord? Consider the kings of ancient times with their counsellors before them. Consider Tony Abbott with his (coughs) ministerial advisors or prime ministerial advisors. You can't expect Tony Abbott to know all about law enforcement, the environment, Industrial relations. He has advisors to give him advice. So he can make wise decisions, we pray. God has no advisors, no ministerial advisors. God has no counselors. God has no research staff. He doesn't need them. We, however, would like to apply for the job so that we can tell God how to fix his world because he doesn't really know, obviously. We think we know. But God says, really? You think you can be my counsellor? Tell God how to run the world? Isaiah again gets the flavour of this, Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 6, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Yes, there's glory there. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah continues a bit later in that chapter. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on a scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? There's Paul's reference. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who do you think? Who was it that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. 
They are regarded as dust on the scales. You reckon you know how to run the world? Job was a wise and a righteous and a wealthy man. And through the tempting and the testing of Satan, God permitted trial upon trial to come upon this servant Job. And Job lost his family, the rich relationships he had. Job lost all of his wealth. Job lost his health. It's a long book, the book of Job, but throughout the book, Job wrestles and he rails with God. And Job says, this is not fair, this is not right, let me have it out with you, God. Come on down, answer me. Tell me what's going on and I'll tell you how I've been righteous. And this is not fair. Speak to me and I will defend myself. In the end, the Lord graciously does come down. And speak with his servant Job. The Lord comes in majesty and power. So we read in chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand, Job. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings, on what were its footings set? Who, who laid the cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Over in chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with me, with the Almighty, correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? You think you know, Job? Chapter 41, verse 10. 11. Who has a claim against me, says the Lord, that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Finishes with Job replying, I know, Lord, that you can do all things. No plan of yours will be thwarted. You ask, who is this who obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You see, God needs no counsel from you and from me. Or from anyone else. Verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? There's the last of our questions. 
We think God owes us one. We all tend to think this way from time to time. That we've done enough, that God's in debt to us. Look at what I've done. This is not right. But no, 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 God owes us nothing and we owe him everything. Throughout Romans, we have seen that salvation is not by our own effort. It's all a gift of grace. It's all on account of the mercy of God. It's all from God. We cannot save ourselves. We can never be in credit with God. All we have is debt. And God pays the price. God redeems, to use that language. There is redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ who pays the price for us. Jesus came and it was all of grace. Our salvation is all of grace. We need to stop thinking otherwise. We owe God nothing. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. See, we need to get a grip on ultimate reality. Declaring ultimate reality is praise in its purest form. When you are praising God truly, you are just stating the truth. You're declaring what is ultimately true and real. Does God owe us anything? Can we counsel God? Can we know really and truly everything about the mind of God? No, we can't. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So Paul finishes his praise. From him are all things. He is the source. He is the creator. He is the originator. He is the unmoved mover. Everything comes from God. Your salvation, our salvation, our hope, our forgiveness, our redemption is all from God. In his will and his purpose, through his sending his son to die for our sins so that we might have eternal life, is all from God. For from him and through him are all things. He is the sustainer of our world, of our lives. He is the determiner. He is sovereign. And when it comes to our salvation, it is through God that we are saved. Through faith in his Son. Through him are all things. And to him are all things. He is the goal. He is the destination. He is the one to whom all praise and glory and honor will redound through the ages. Our salvation as his people is unto God. For his glory and his praise manifesting the magnificence of his glory and his honor and his mercy and his grace. Where we deserve nothing. Go to the end of the Bible to Revelation chapter 1. And the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Who is and who was And who is to come, 
the Almighty. When you get to chapter 4 of Revelation, John has a vision of the throne room of heaven and there are these winged creatures, four living winged creatures flying around the throne. And day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders around the throne fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they lay their crowns before him on the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. All glory, praise and honour to the one who sits on the throne. It's fascinating when you get to the end of Revelation. We read about the Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There is ultimate reality revealed in the majesty of our Saviour. To God be the glory forever. You have two options when you encounter greatness. One option is to be fueled by pride and resentment. That's not so great. So what? I could be like that. Another option when you encounter greatness is humility and gratitude. Wow, I'm so thankful. You know, you think you can sing? Pretty good at singing? You listen to Pavarotti sing. You can't sing. Listen to Mariah Carey. Listen to Jesse Norman. You can't sing. What are you going to do? You're going to say, wow, humble yourself and just be grateful for Pavarotti. Thank you, Lord, for giving Pavarotti such a beautiful voice because that sounds fantastic. You're going to be proud and resentful. You reckon you can paint? You're pretty good with the art and things? You sit before Monet for a while, have a look at the Sistine Chapel. Statue of David. Have a look at Picasso's work and the originality and the creativeness and the way of expressing. And you're not that good. What are you going to do? Humble yourself and say, wow, I'm so glad. This is such a good thing to look at. Or say, oh, I could have done that. That's not so good. Who says? You reckon you're pretty athletic? You watch Hussein Bolt run. <laughs> you watch Roger Federer play tennis. Or join him in a game and see if you last two seconds. You're not so good. What are you going to do? Be resentful? Fool yourself? Or are you going to humble yourself and say, Praise God. Now stand before the majesty of the almighty God whose paths you can't even understand and are beyond tracing out, but who is your creator? 
where everything's come from Him and is through Him and to Him. Are you going to respond with pride and resentment? <laughs> Who says? It's not the way I would have done it. Can't be much of a God when it's looking like this. What sort of plan and purpose has He got for the renewal of the world? Or are you going to humble yourself and say, Thank you, Lord. You are so great. Your plan is so perfect. One response is life-giving. The true response of falling down and worshipping. The other response, everything else is a lie. It's a self-deception. Stand back and look at God's purposes for the salvation of his people. And think that you can even be included in those purposes by faith in Jesus. Ah, from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Isn't God amazing? Same God that chooses to Forgive us, he accepts us, and he lives within us. What is our response this morning? Um, uh, our prayer would be to revive us, to cleanse us, and to renew us. I invite you to stand uh, as we close our service with uh, our last song.
Lord, we thank you for this morning that we can just be revived. Just ask, Lord, that, that even as we leave the sanctuary, that uh, we will just acknowledge how great you are and what an awesome God you are to us. Allow us to grow each day, Lord, loving you more, deeper and deeper. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may um, continue to join us um, uh, to have a cup of tea and morning and some refreshments in a little bit. Thank you.